Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also, this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley and Ben Cooper. We are excited to be with you today on season three. How you doing, Ben? I'm trying to live the dream, Jill. I was looking, I'm looking forward to today. Me too. Ben comes from an agricultural background and is an avid beekeeper. He writes Christian nonfiction devotionals and has a children's nonfiction picture book series called Created Critters. Ben also is a contributing author for two guidepost publications, and you can connect with him at Cooperville at Atlantic Beast atlanticbb.net and i will be sure and drop that email in the chat so you guys can find it later so ben welcome and it's so good to have you here today thanks i'm uh, looking like i said looking forward to it and uh, willing to share some of my life experiences absolutely what part of the world are you in ben um if you put a Pin in Pittsburgh and another one in Washington, D.C. Draw a straight line and where the Mason-Dixon line between Maryland and Pennsylvania cross, that's basically where I am. Um, uh, okay. In the foothills of the Eastern Continental Divide and then Appalachian Mountains. Okay. Um, does the Appalachian Trail um, come all the way up there? Well, it doesn't come this far west. It's more, it goes through uh, the area of Maryland would be the Frederick, Maryland area, and then up into Pennsylvania. Okay. Have you ever done that? Uh, not the whole thing, but I've done sections of it. Yeah. I People who do that, man, they're rugged and hardy. I am not rugged and hardy. <laughs> it, it takes uh, a, an athletic person four months to walk that or hike that. Really? Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. Well, um, tell me a little bit about yourself and your family and, uh, and what you're doing right now. Well, I retired several years ago after working 32 years for the Maryland Department of Agriculture. I had one of those, what I call a dream job. I got paid to go out and walk around on people's farms. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm, uh, been around animals all my life. Hence the writing that I lean towards in uh, the animal uh, and natural world. But uh, got married. Uh, we're soon to celebrate our 33rd wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Five, thank you. Um, have five kids, five adult kids. My wife homeschooled them. I wasn't allowed to mess too much with her homeschool activity. <laughs> <laughs> involved taking them outside and looking at at uh, things in nature and, and going on hikes and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I've been a beekeeper since I started at age 14 and had messed with it on and off, but really got serious back about, oh, 2000 or 2002, somewhere around there. It got back into it seriously and been teaching and mentoring people 
ever since. That's great. Do you have any bonus kids yet married in? Um, don't have none of my children are married. I have a son in the faith from the Caribbean. Uh, awesome. And he's a pastor in a church in Oklahoma right now, and he has five kids. So he considers me his father, and um, and I was honored to be. Um, my wife and I were honored to be his represent him in his wedding as his parents and uh i was his best man so uh we kind of have some surrogate that's great, great grandchildren but they're an awful far away for us to be able to see him yeah yeah um we have we have one grand grandbaby and she's in omaha and we're in montana and it just seems like a long ways away doesn't it yep <laughs> yeah he so spends, he, been, he spent seven summers with us so really oh, uh, fun came up I went on a mission trip and met him when he was very young a young teenager and then when he got out of secondary school uh, I invited him to come up and work at a summer camp and he spent seven summers while he was going to college and staying with us that's great that's great so where did you grow up at um north of Pittsburgh about 45 minutes to an hour in a rural area where dairy farming was pretty much pretty uh, routine for a lot of the area where I grew up. And what was your family like? Do you have brothers or sisters or? Um, yeah, I have um, two brothers. One passed away several years ago uh, due, to, due to some health complications, but um, I was the one in the middle, the forgotten one, not the oldest, not the youngest. <laughs> um, I tease people and say that I'm the milkman's son because my, my dad milked cows. So, uh, uh, yeah. Um, and just always in love, be loved being outdoors involved with animals, the farming world and nature, all that stuff. So, uh, uh, that led me to go to Penn state, get a degree from Penn state university in agricultural science and, which then led me to uh, the job that I worked for 32 years. So you never wanted to have a dairy farm or a cattle farm or a farm of your own? Um, not the commitment level that you have to have with the dairy farm. You know, uh, I grew up just around all that stuff and it's hard on a family. Uh, vacations don't happen, uh, you know, it's hard work. It's hard work. And it's one of the few professions where you sell your product at wholesale, but you buy all your stuff that you need at retail. And so, you know, it's, it's just, and then you're relying on climate and environmental issues that sometimes you have no control over. Right. My husband's whole family or a large portion of the family are farmers and comes from a long line of farmers. And his grandmother says, if you aren't a gambler, you, if you're a farmer, you are a gambler because <laughs> you're kind of, you're kind of gambling on the weather and, and uh, whatever God sends you. Right. Yep. I guess. And so that led me to maybe downside. Some people will say downsizing or uh, fear sizing, maybe to beekeeping. And I have three different bee yards, two of them in, are in Maryland, one of them is here at my house, but uh, beekeeping, I, whenever I teach it, I have, I draw a circle and I write the word 
farmers in one circle. I draw another circle overlapping and it overlaps the other circle and it says crazy people and right where the two come together is beekeeping that's where you find <laughs> beekeeping. So, uh, nice nice so when were you first diagnosed with cancer 20 years ago uh i was diagnosed with cancer in the upper sinus passage and uh, i knew something was just out of whack it wasn't that i felt terrible I didn't feel effects of it. Uh, I saw some effects of it, but uh, um, my wife strongly encouraged me to go visit. One of the farmers I worked with also was an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And so I knew him on a personal basis. Then I knew him on a professional basis. And so what was it that caused you to be alarmed and think something was going on? Every morning I would wake up, I would uh, blow my nose, clear my sinuses, and a small little blood clot, not very big at all, would come out of the left nostril every day, just like clockwork. And uh, that didn't know why. And so my wife says, I think you know, need to go get an appointment with your buddy. And uh, so that started. And, and you know, Jill, he knew as soon as he looked into my nose, he knew it was cancer mm. and that just sped up a, a series of tests and evaluations and biopsies just really, really fast. In fact, when I saw him, he said, go get a, a CAT scan today and then bring it back to me. And then he said, go get an MRI. You can't get it today, get it tomorrow and bring it back to me. And then he did biopsy in his office rather than doing it in the hospital like he normally did. And then there was a long period of waiting for the results of the biopsy. And what was the diagnosis? Uh, adenocarcinoma, which is cancer in the upper sinus passage. Your body is filled with adenoglands in your core and it's the mucous glands that are in your body to make it work right. And so I breathe, yeah, I never smoked a cigarette. I'm 60 years old, never smoked a cigarette in my life, but yet uh, a lot of people will have sinus cancer if they are smokers, but I never smoked, but I just breathed in a free radical that lodged in my upper sinuses and, and started to grow. Wow. And so what was the survivability rate of that particular cancer? 35%. Wow. Um, so it was pretty aggressive. It was aggressive. One, when you have cancer, people that have cancer, one of the first things they want to know is what stage is it? Mm -hmm. So when the biopsy came back, uh, it was like 3.9. It was only surgery would tell if it was four, but when, when biopsy and surgery confirmed it to be like as close to four as possible because it started spreading and invading other things. A third of my eye socket uh, left orbit was cut out and bone grafted in some skull base. So, uh, yeah, it, sometimes you can't answer the questions of, of what goes on, um, with just a biopsy. It takes, right. takes all the other steps. Right. Well, then you endured like over 130 radiation treatments. Yeah. Four times a day, uh, four treatments a day for six and a half weeks. Uh, I had to 
lay down, have this web type plastic mask to bolt my head to a table and then uh, deal with four treatments a day for six and a half weeks. And that was about three hours away from home. So I had to leave Monday and I came back on Friday uh, uh, away from home. And so I went through that six and a half weeks away from my family uh, for the most part. And each Monday started the whole thing over again. And how did that affect your physical system, all that radiation? Uh, they said it wasn't supposed, they were, they, you know, doctors claim a lot of things and, and, and they said our, our equipment and our expertise will pinpoint that radiation. And because I asked, am I going to lose my hair? And they said, oh, no, you know, we have good equipment. Two and a half weeks into the radiation, uh, about a four inch circle of hair disappeared out of the back of my head, like a perfect circle and where all those spots were. And I kind of thought, you know, is treat is this treatment worth it because there's kind of a an important thing between my face and the back of my head yeah all the brain and um you know they encourage me to keep it up but if you know anything about radiation it has long-term ill effects absolutely so i have cataracts in both eyes because of it and the surgery that they did and immediate effects was i had name recall issues I could walk up if I if I knew you I could not say address you as Jill I could not pull that name from my memory and and um, that's because of the location of the brain where where the radiation was hitting me. Did that ever come back? Yeah, yeah it came back. But uh, I told one farmer, um, I said I can get in a vehicle and drive right to your farm, but I can't tell you your name today. You know? Interesting. Did you have extreme fatigue from the radiation? I know some people have have a lot of fatigue. Um, I did not. I had to drive, like I said, Monday, a two and a half to three hour drive to get to Baltimore, Maryland. And then um, luckily enough, I had a friend that offered to allow me to stay with him during the week. And then Friday morning, I would get up. So the fatigue was, it just felt like I was either laying down or I was driving all the time. And that, that, that um, um, pretty much spent my summer or six and a half weeks out of my summer that year. That's a little scary, not to mention monotonous, right? Um, scariest part was probably trying to uh, maneuver and keep up with Baltimore traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Is it bad over there? Yeah, when I consider a traffic delay because of an Amish buggy where I'm from, um, you know, that's considered bad traffic uh, issues to wait till you get around a buggy, a horse and buggy, but down there, yeah, it's, uh, it's not the friendliest city in the world. And, um, you know, just having to deal with that every day and finding out just simple things like the parking garage that you are accustomed to parking in is filled and you have to find another place to park. Right. Um, those kind of things. Yeah, just just navigating all of that. Well, speaking of navigating, how do you navigate the journey of cancer and in your mind and balance that with your faith and what goes on in your brain um, during that time? You know, there's everybody that gets cancer has the shock effect first. Mm-hmm. When that diagnosis comes, you're shocked. 
whether you're a person of faith or not, it, it's going to shock you. It's going to, you know, upset your world. And then um, there's there's time for tears, and you don't know what the future's going to hold. And then that immediately goes into information mode, like a sponge. You want to get all the information you can because you want to do what you make the best decision with your doctors to fight this and get it out of your system. You want that cancer out of your body as quick as possible. So uh, I would have been a complete mess if it wasn't for prayer, if it wasn't for uh, people that would surround me and pray for me. But um, my faith was strong before cancer. And I think that truly helped because I think when you deal with something big traumatic like that, uh, you've if you're prayed up and faithed up if that's a word uh beforehand you know those are the resources that are just as important as being physically okay to handle surgeries and other stuff because mentally depending on what type of cancer or what kind of trauma that that you face um being spiritually in a good place to start with is gonna uh really help no matter absolutely what no matter what the end results are. And so I reckon with the first cancer that I had, being a double cancer survivor, um, I was thankful that I had it. That doesn't make sense to most people. But when I used uh, that thought that I was thankful that I had it, that it wasn't my wife or my kids, that helped me get through um, mm -hmm. the diagnosis. Because if the doctor would have told me, or if all three of the doctors would have told me, everything that first day it would have consumed me absolutely too, too much to handle if i would have, if i would have had to uh they sat down and said this is what you have this is what we're going to do this is what the follow-up is going to do and this is what's going to happen 20 years down the road to you uh, i wouldn't handle it. but god gave me grace and mercy each and every day for the next step you know i remember when our two-year-old was diagnosed with cancer i remember driving back from the hospital after the initial diagnosis and mentally planning her funeral in my mind um, because you just don't know right you just don't know the magnitude of what that means and survivability you hear cancer and for us you hear cancer in a child and you just think that's it we're done and i think you're right without the people of god to surround us and and buoy us and give us faith um we would have drowned you know i like i like that term buoy us because yeah because we need to be floated and lifted and um you know praying on your own yeah that's that's important and not giving up having the mental uh faculties sharpened and honed and being in that good place uh, is great. The night before a 10 and a half hour surgery was probably the best night's rest I had in the last 20 years. Mm. Um, going into a big, scary, you know, when you, I, I probably then as a parent, you had to sign papers for that child, understanding they may never wake up after surgery. And as, yep. an adult, you know, I had to do that too. And that's, that's, pretty stoic kind of thing to go through and uh, but I was you know if God said it was time for me to go I was okay with that at peace my, with that my yeah I had peace and that allowed me to sleep soundly the night before um, and I had uh, stayed with some friends 
down in Baltimore that their family is a kind of an adopted family as well. And so my parents, my wife and my youngest daughter, who was only a, a couple of months old, and my brother, along with their family, uh, had prayer time for me. And then I was left at the doctor's hands and God's hands uh, for what came from that. Yeah. So what happened, not to leave anybody hanging, by the way, our daughter is 22 and just got married last summer and is doing well and is beautiful and just a lovely adult. So don't want to leave that part of the story hanging. Um, But then you were diagnosed with a second cancer. Tell me about that. Yeah, um, it's not easy to be diagnosed with cancer the second time. Some people think, well, you've been through this before, you know, you don't want to. And, and I, I struggled, Jill, with that for about three days. Uh, I kind of thought I did my time. Right. I, I, and then I stopped myself short thinking, you know, well, who would I wish cancer on? Somebody Absolutely. else. Absolutely. Even my worst enemy, you know, the Bible tells us God and directs us to, to uh, it's easy to love your friends and family, um, but to love your enemies, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even wish it on an enemy because it's nasty and it's just cancer is evil. And, and so um, feel sorry for myself for a day, two, three, and then uh, God reminded me that uh, there was a book that I wanted to write. And so my first cancer, I used that um, transferring all of that onto myself instead of my family. And the second cancer, I decided uh, that I was going to write instead of worry. It was hard because they scheduled four months from diagnosis to surgery. Wow. That's an eternity. When you know cancer grows. Um, and so why so long? Prostate cancer is what the second cancer was. And they said it doesn't advance as quickly as other types of cancer. That doesn't help the patient much, but no, with a comforting, it doesn't comfort you. But especially when one of those goals is you want that cancer out as quick as possible. And so uh, I decided to start writing, uh, writing a devotional book that I wanted to write years ago, actually started it years ago. And um I kept a paper and pen right next to my bed at night when I would wake up and, you know, thoughts come in, what's, what the, fu- what's the future going to look like? I tell people that first cancer I had was life-threatening. The second cancer was life-changing. Mm. So the all nature things, the 28-day devotional, was that written during your first cancer or in between or during your second cancer? That was between my second cancer diagnosis and, um, not all of it, but a lot of it was written as therapy for me to uh, um, focus on something positive rather than, hey, I have cancer and I'm waiting for surgery. Right. And so what's kind of the, what's kind of the um, feel of that book? God's blessed that so many times. You know, if, uh, if you write a book, it's said that everybody has a book inside of them to write a book. Um, it may not be a very long, some of it might be a, a uh, fiction, might be a, a nonfiction, might be poetry, but everybody has a story to tell. And not everybody gets to the point where they write that story. Mm-hmm. And the journey 
as a writer, especially as a first time as an author, you think it finishes whenever you submit that to a publisher and you get that book in your hand. That's a great feeling, but the journey only begins when that comes out because one of the most uh, beneficial parts of being an author, especially writing things of faith where you can encourage other people is when somebody comes back and says, hey, what you wrote really means something to me. Absolutely. It, it, it's what I needed for what I'm going through today. And so that is, uh, that, that's a benefit that uh, no, no amount of um, awards or uh, number of book sales or bestsellers will um, match that. Yeah, that's amazing. So um, you've written some children's books? Yeah, I wrote the first book and uh, didn't know where I was going to go from there. And, and a um, Christian agent that I talked to said, why don't you take that first book and consider writing children? This would be great to write children's books. And, and so I thought, boy, I'd never thought of writing children's books before which also then includes an illustrator and have right. there. And so um, uh, I started in on that and I have two that are published, I, the Created Critter series and going to be soon working on um, book number three. That's great. And so those books are available on Amazon? Yeah, they're available uh, pretty much anywhere where you can get books. Uh, Amazon Books A Million and Barnes and Noble or directly through me if uh, you want to get them through me. That's great. So I noticed in my notes that I took earlier, we didn't talk very much about it, but you do some speaking. Yeah, I will speak to uh, especially um, uh, some young kids uh, with nature and things. I, I do some outdoor schools locally. I work with uh, church camps and, and speak with them, but also speak at churches and and engage them with uh, um, my love for nature, but then also the trauma that I've gone through and how I come out through that. I just finished four months online Bible study for our church, which is currently without a pastor and filling in on finding God in the details. And so I'm going through all these things and discovering that we just look at something and read something. And there's a lot more details there than what uh, you know, God's fingerprints are all throughout and we don't make the connection as quick as uh, what we should. So I love teaching. Doesn't it make you just dive into the word more and expounds your knowledge and your appreciation and your reverence for what the word means to us when you look at those details? It's, yes. And especially when you look at it from the original Hebrew language and you understand how complicated it's all of scripture is a tapestry you can't just pull one thread out or the whole the whole rug gets uh the whole image gets ruined and so there's so many different themes that go through there and they cross connect and the um, understanding more and more about some of the hebrew words hebrew customs is just amazing to me. So I enjoy teaching. I enjoy taking a break whenever it's done. Um, but I also enjoy because if you teach, and you know this, Jill, you probably learn more. Absolutely. Get the benefit from it from those that, that you teach to or share. Absolutely. With. Absolutely. 
Well, Ben, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I will be sure and put your email um, in our show notes. And I am just blessed and honored to speak with you. I thank you and praise God for his healing and his touch in in your life and for all that has come because of that. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to do that. And uh, when people ask me how I'm doing, even though a double cancer survivor and have other health issues going on, I tell people I'm living the dream. And, you know, God saved me uh, spiritually years and years and years ago. And I'm thankful for that as a young teenager uh, that saved me from a lot of bad choices. But he saved me and preserved me to be here on this earth. And my reasonable service is to share the love of him with everybody that I can. Absolutely. Well, thank you. You have a great day. All right. You too. Thanks, Joe. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.